Hi, I'm Professor Wilkins from the United States. I grew up in New Mexico, but I currently live in New Jersey. And I have currently three dogs. That's Professor Wilkins, who teaches genetics and first-year courses at Minerva. This week, we're diving deep into Professor Wilkins' story on humans of Minerva. Welcome to Humans of Minerva, a podcast which captures the interesting stories of humans at Minerva. I'm your host, Jules, and today I'll be sitting down with Professor Wilkins. We just finished the first half of the year. Yeah, we're about to start our winter break. So I was wondering, Professor Wilkins, what are your plans for the winter break? I am hoping this year to finish my grading early so that I can actually have a couple of weeks when I am genuinely on vacation. Great. Is there a lot of grading to do this year? There is a lot of grading to do every year. And unfortunately, last year it wound up with me doing a lot at the very last minute before grades were due on whatever it was. So. <laughs> well, I mean, like as your student, I'd definitely be happy if you like managed to finish your grading early because it's always nice to get your grades soon. So best of luck with that. You mentioned you grew up in New Mexico. I'm wondering, I'm not from the US, so how was like growing up in, in New Mexico like? Uh, so I actually grew up in Los Alamos, New Mexico, which is a sort of peculiar town. It's a town that did not exist before it's where the, the atomic bomb was created. People who lived in nearby towns were not allowed to know what it was. So then they brought, you know, scientists there for the atomic bomb. The, the first one was built there. The original was tested down in southern New Mexico. The two towns of Los Alamos and White Rock have a population of maybe 19,000. And of those, about 5,000 of them have PhDs. It's really a sort of a company town. It's sort of isolated. It's you know, surrounded by trees. 90% of the people in town work at the National Laboratory. So your parents were scientists as well? Yeah, so my dad's PhD was in physics. My mom had a PhD in computer science. So it was a weird, it was sort of like TV shows of small town America in the 50s in this isolated town in New Mexico. And um, the town itself was actually closed until sometime in the 60s. Like you needed clearance to even enter the town. It was a sort of a peculiar place to grow up. Yeah, there were places you can't go there because there's unexploded ordnance. Wow. Yeah, that sounds definitely like an interesting, but like odd place to grow up. And may I ask, did your parents move there to kind of support like the building of the atomic bomb? Neither of my parents were actually involved in weapons research. I would say at the time when I was growing up, the lab as a whole was maybe 50% sort of defense, you know, weapons nuclear-related research and 50% other types of research. So my dad for a long time worked on nuclear fusion, you know, energy. My mom did computer science things in a variety of contexts, control programs for flow cytometry. My parents were not involved on the weapons side. One peculiar thing where, you know, you grew up there and you don't necessarily ask, oh, what does your dad do? Because maybe they're not allowed to tell you. Oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. So you quite early got in touch with research, I, I would guess, like in that growing up in that town. Yeah, it was very much a very, very sciencey sort of town. I studied physics in college and it was largely because I sort of grew up with this idea of uh, if you're smart enough to study physics, you should study physics. <laughs> My high school was actually full of people who went off to college and started off as physics majors and then by about the end of their first semester discovered that there were other interesting things in the world and abandoned physics and did something else. I believe you studied physics at Harvard, right? Yes, I studied physics at Harvard. It, it actually took me about three and a half years before I figured out that there were other interesting things. Uh, sort of towards the end of college, I decided that, nah, this is not necessarily what I wanted to do. I 
no idea what I did want to do. Spent the last year and a half of college really taking a lot of different classes and different things. Thought about, well, maybe I should go to medical school. And so I started taking some things like biochemistry. I wound up moving back to Los Alamos after I graduated. Got a job working in a biochemistry lab and took a lot of biology, biophysics, biochemistry types of classes and started applying to grad schools. At that point, discovered, no, I don't want to be a doctor at all. What I like is really the research. Started graduate school at Wisconsin in biochemistry. My wife hated living in Wisconsin. Madison is, it's a cute little town. It is really, really cold for about nine months a year and really, really hot and buggy and full of bugs for about two and a half months a year. There's a week in the spring and a week in the fall when it's really, really nice. We ended up moving back to Boston. I did grad school version two back at Harvard again. At that point, I discovered evolutionary theory. So very cool. So I kind of want to go back to your college experience. Like yeah, your, please. Your first four years, I, I believe. Four and a half. I did a, I did a year abroad oh. at Lancaster in the UK and I petitioned for one semester worth of credit because I didn't, I didn't work very hard during that year. <laughs> so how was that like going to the UK as an American? It was a blast. It was really fun. I was really into the romantic poets at the time. It was really close to the Lake District. It's an adorable little campus, sort of out on the edge of town. It's very sort of cozy. Such a different college experience. I didn't study very hard there overall. Which is fair. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's not really your job. But I feel like I did have what to me was like a real transformative moment, which is I was taking like a philosophy of religion class. And when at some point to office hours to talk to a professor about something I had been thinking about from some other class, and he says, are you going to write your paper on that? And I'm like, well, but that's not the assignment. It's not really what this course is. And he's like, I don't care. And, you know, what I, and somehow that really stuck with me and it completely transformed the way I approached my own classes in terms of thinking about, you know, not just viewing a class as a set of things to take off, like here's your job, you got to do this, how you got to do this, but actually really as an opportunity to learn something about something that I'm passionate about and to get excited about something and learn about it. Once I sort of started approaching classes in that way, I got so much more out of them, easier to care about them. I, I did better work and it's something I've carried with me and in, into teaching as well, you know, always with any student comes to me and says, I'd like to do this slightly different thing. My answer is almost always, yes, please do that. Oh, I love that. That's great. You also mentioned that you were like kind of in the from romantic poets. Mm -hmm. So did you, how did you discover poetry? Because I also know that you, you're writing poetry, right? You're doing a poetry workshop in Minerva, so. I would say I really discovered, it was, it was really in high school English classes. I remember, I mean, the one I really specifically remember was in the junior year high school, we had a big section on the romantic poets, Wordsworth and Coleridge and Shelley and Byron. And I think of a sort of the pivotal moment for me was like reading and, and seeing like when Shelley in Ode to the West Wind says, I fall upon the thorns of life, I bleed. And it's like, who says that? It was just this crazy, you know, like the, the fact that you could come out and say something like that, that's so sort of emotional and overwrought it's just this sort of objectively insane thing. And, and a friend of mine and I, we, we got sort of super into sort of spoofing like this sort of thing, writing sort of mock poetry in this sort of mock romantic style, this overwrought thing. But what I discovered is I just really loved doing it. And the more I read and wrote, 
of course, at the time, I think, you know, in the early, early 1800s in England, I think you could walk around the streets and say things like, I fall upon the thorns of life, I bleed, because that was just <laughs> what the, that was where the culture was at the time, right? But it's so foreign to where we are now, right? We're all a little too cynical and a little too cool, you know. <laughs> but one of the one of the things that's always really interested me in poetry is, sort of, can you actually get there to where you can actually make a statement like that and have it work in a contemporary voice? I think it's really hard, rather than the, the sort of aloof intellectual thing that, that a lot of poetry has become, or the aloof confessional, yeah. you know, where you're sort of distanced, you know, you're, you're explaining some raw experience, but you're doing it in this sort of very aloof way, which I feel like is much more the convention now. Yes. Do you have a favorite poet or favorite poem, like something that stuck with you? Yeah, there are some of the ones, I said, the, the romantics always, you know, had a big impact on me, and I can still read those and really value them. For a while, I think, particularly in college, I was really into sort of the high modernist Yates and Williams and Wallace Stevens. Later, I feel like, I, I would say the book that I feel like had, not super, but the biggest impact on me and when I was sort of, I feel like, finding sort of my own voice mm. in a way was a book called The Incognito Lounge by Dennis Johnson. He's actually mainly a novelist. He wrote a couple of books of poems in there. I feel like they were written in San Francisco. I don't actually even know if that's true. But they're, yeah, they're like little vignettes. And I feel like they're halfway about just sort of the language, you know, sort of this, I feel like there's a pure joy in the language that's being used. Is that what kind of had the impact on you about them? Like the, just the language? Yeah. And, and this level of emotional rawness that's sort of filtered through this language. Can I read you a line? Yeah, please, please. All right. This is from a full of physical passengers. The world will burst like an intestine in the sun. The dark turn to granite granite to a name, but there will always be somebody riding the bus through these intersections strewn with broken glass, among speechless women beating their little ones, always a slow alphabet of rain, speaking of drifting and perishing to the air. Yeah, so it's it's got this sort of intense imagery that's a little bit abstract, like always a slow alphabet of rain. What does that mean? I can't, I can't, I can't really tell you. But it, it feels, you know, sort of rich, like it's sort of the type of thing. I, I couldn't tell you one thing that it means. I could maybe tell you 20 different things. But there's an emotional honesty there, you know, but there's a real rawness of experience. That's beautiful. Okay, so what, what we got so far, like, so why do you study physics at Harvard? Biochemistry in your, in, your, in your graduate studies, right? And at the same time, you're really, you've always like writing poetry, right? Mm -hmm. and, and actually, when I was in grad school, Fortunately, I had, I had a couple of very supportive PhD advisors mm -hmm. who basically would let me do whatever. And so while I was doing my evolutionary theory work, I took some English classes, philosophy classes. And actually for a number of years, I was in a poetry workshop run by Jury Grant, which was a just wonderful experience. We had a couple of years there where there was like 12 people in the workshop and maybe about 10 or 11 of them wound up publishing books the quality of writers in there was absolutely extraordinary and a super supportive. When Professor Bogutki and I started doing a poetry workshops at Minerva, a lot of it was based on my experience with that, like thinking about, right, particularly that really magical time 
in that workshop, what is it that made that so productive? And you know, how can we try to recreate something like that for Minerva students to participate in? Yeah. I also feel if you like come together with people and you share a passion, that's kind of like a beautiful thing to build a friendship on. So I bet you you really like appreciated the people that were with you in the workshop as well. Absolutely. Yeah. There's in part you build this, but also it depends on yeah, this level of emotional honesty and trust. Yeah, that's that's so true. I don't write too much, but I know that with music. So when I'm making music together with people and like they play their new songs to me. I'm like, that is just like another level of being honest with each other because it's like telling a story. I imagine to be something like that for you. Yeah, there, absolutely. There's this level of intimacy that comes with sharing that and having, you know, people who are going to be the first people to see this thing you wrote. One of the great things about poetry is you know, it can be so many different things. I think when you've got a really good functioning workshop, might have, you know, 10 people and they're all pursuing really different things. They're writing in different styles with different goals, but everybody has a sense of what other people are trying to accomplish and they're cheering them on. Yeah. That sounds like a really beautiful community, like a good, good place to be. So did you have like a time where you, where you were like, oh, like screw that. I'm, I'm going to become a novelist. I just, I just write books for the rest of my life. Did you have that moment? You know, I, I would say not really, because I, in some ways I don't see myself as being in anything. I think one thing that I've always found is at some point I sort of quit worrying about it. I, mean, I remember it was like in high school, you know, like teachers would say, well, you know, it's, yeah, it's really cool that you're interested in all these different things, you know, but now you're going to college, you're going to need to pick one and focus. Yeah. Right. And so I went to college and I sort of didn't do that. At every stage, the advice I was getting was, it was really great that I hadn't narrowed down, but now I was going to have to. And yeah, so at some point I had just sort of quit worrying about it. I think it meant I wasn't going to have a sort of traditional, say, academic career. I love it, but would I do that in the, you know, to the exclusion of doing science stuff? No, probably not. Yeah. And similarly, like with the science stuff, at some point I figured, okay, I'm not actually going to do all the things does for the traditional career because it would require giving up other stuff. Yeah. Is that like also advice you'd give to students? I think it depends. Some people are very happy focusing. I feel like the advice I give to students is more along the lines of, you know, if there's something that you're passionate about, you should do that. And, and if it's, if it's three things that you're passionate about, then you should do those three things. If it's one thing, you should do that one thing. If it's something that, yeah, you can get genuinely excited about, then that means you're going to do a better job of it now that you're going to learn more from it. The experience is going to be richer from a success perspective, you know, doing the optimal thing, but doing it sort of poorly because you're not that interested probably gives you less opportunities in life than doing the third best thing you could do, but doing it really well because you love it so much. Oh, no, that makes totally sense kind of going back. So what was next for you? I did a rotation in a C. elegans lab, which are little millimeter long worms. And I felt so guilty killing the worms that I decided, okay, I'm not, I'm not going to be a real biologist. And then I discovered, yeah. oh, I can do mathematical modeling of biology. Though. And then I got this weird postdoc position at Harvard, which was Society of Fellows, which is like this funny thing where basically your job for three years is to have three meals a, a week with the other fellows and work on whatever it is you're going to work on. So when I finished that, fortunately, I wound up getting a job at the Santa Fe Institute, which felt like 
one of the only sort of academic jobs out there that was like that, where your job day to day is there are people coming in from all over the world who do a huge diversity of things. You're talking to people who do you know, physics and economics and, and different things. So you did that for a while? Yeah, so I was there for six years, and then... And then it was time again, you know, to move on and where the standard thing would have been to, again, join a biology department. And I just sort of couldn't then face it. So I moved to New Jersey and I started a nonprofit research institute, started blogging about it. It was the Ronin Institute for Independent Scholarship. So it was basically a way to sort of be independent. Yeah. As I was blogging about it, people started contacting me and saying, I've been looking for something like this. The process of, you know, the next couple of years having a lot of conversations with people. One of the things I discovered you know, is there's actually this enormous pool of people out there who are super knowledgeable, super passionate about something for whom traditional academia just doesn't work for any of a number of reasons, right? Some fields, there's just not nearly enough jobs compared to how many People there are, you know, people who went and got their PhD late in life. I mean, you get your PhD at age 55. Yeah. Really, really tough to get an assistant professor job. People who have a spouse who has a career that is geographically constrained. Yeah. I think it's actually tens of thousands of people who have training, expertise, world-class expertise in some area. But because of the way academia works, they're sort of excluded from participating and it just sort of doesn't make any sense the idea of the institute is you know a way for people to say you know, you know whatever your constraints are you know no matter where you live no matter you know how much time you have to devote to this you know about something and you care about it and you want to research it and you want to share your knowledge with the world you ought to be able to do that yeah uh, so it's a basically a community a space for them to interact and sort of mutually support each other yeah um, just having like that that opportunity of affiliation to like an organization. Are you just like the head of like operations at Ronin Institute? There are a couple of us who run sort of the businessy stuff. So some people run grants through the institute, and so there's a lot of grant management stuff and policy stuff that has to happen with that. A lot of the community stuff, we've really worked hard to sort of come up with ways for it to be very peer to peer and community governance. You know, so most things happen on a sort of volunteer, self-organized basis. Yeah. It used to be that I was in charge of setting up everyone's email and, and maintaining the website, and that's become a bit more distributed. That's sort of a part-time thing, and then, yeah, and then teach at Minerva the rest of the time. In many ways, it has a sort of a minerva e feel, right? and this is the same thing yes. I love about Minerva, is this community and this sort of, all these people who are passionate about and knowledgeable about really different things and coming from all over the world with this huge diversity of experiences. How did you find Minerva? I actually knew about it from, from the very beginning because there was a guy named Eric Bonobo who was somehow associated, maybe assistant dean of something when they were first starting, who spent a lot of time at Santa Fe Institute. So I, I heard about it, interacted with him. But I just did not have the bandwidth at the time. Five years ago, Ronan was becoming sort of stable. And one thing that I discovered is I was really, really missing with students. Wound up getting a job and been, been here for four and a half years now. I think you're also one of the most versatile professors at Minerva. I only had you in the computer science course, but you told us that you basically have teach like any of the first year courses, right? 
I think it's sort of luck in a way that my particular history happens to align reasonably well with the particular cornerstones. The one that I, in some ways, am most naturally aligned with by my resume is probably empirical analyses. But I've you know been doing that from a mathematical computational point of view for a long time, so that fits well with formal analyses. Senfi Institute is built on complex systems. So I spent six years in basically a complex system setting. And then, yeah, my longstanding interest in poetry and, and stuff meant that, yeah, I sort of just happened to have done things that align moderately well with, with the four cornerstones. Yeah. Actually, my favorite thing is teaching courses where I don't necessarily know all of the material because I actually really love learning new things. Yeah. I'm listening to you, I'm kind of wondering what's going to be the next thing because it seems to me that your life you do like four to six to eight years there and then you move on and do like the next thing. So do you have anything in mind that could probably be next for you? I don't really know. It is something I've started vaguely thinking about. I have the same vague feeling that there probably is a next thing. Right now, I'm still, yeah, I'm very happy with the way the Ronin Institute is going. I love teaching at Minerva, so I'm not sort of like feeling like I need to do something different. For exactly that reason, I feel like I'll find something that I want to get excited, you know, I get really excited about learning that I want to dive into, but I have no idea what it'll be. I think you've also written a book, right? Oh, yes. I have a published book of poetry. I'd like to do more of that. I think it's time to kind of move on to our fast fire run of questions. So I'm wondering, are you more fan of Netflix or YouTube? Netflix. What's like your favorite show on Netflix? The one that I was super excited about recently was Extraordinary Attorney Wu, which was really fun. Wednesday was really good. Okay, okay. So that's a recommendation for Wednesday. When are you like going on a walk? Do you rather listen to music or to a podcast? Sometimes music, often audiobook. Oh, great. Do you prefer reading books or listening to audiobooks? I like both. I listen to a lot more audiobooks in part because I can multitask doing that. You know, an audiobook is something I can do while folding laundry or walking dogs or... True, yeah. And that comes back to your interstate, right? Like, connects back to your free dogs. Actually, the next question I was about to ask was like dogs or cats, but I feel like that's kind of... <laughs> yes, it's got to it's gotta be dogs, but cats are also awesome. Nothing against cats. Have you always had dogs? Yes. My mom would have named me Charlie, but... They got a dog a couple of years before I was born, and they named the dog Charlie, and then my dad would not let her name me Charlie also. So the dog first and threw it through. That's a good one. What's your spirit fruit? I have no idea, but I'm going to say kumquat, because I remember being a kid and thinking that that was the funniest name for a fruit I'd ever heard. Okay, kumquat. I don't even know what it looks like, but it's I don't either. Fun. I don't either. I have no idea, <laughs> but I know it's a kind of fruit. It's a kind of fruit with a, with a funny name. I have to Google it afterwards, okay. What is your word of the day? Word of the day? Exhaustion. That's a good word of the day for the end of the semester. <laughs> it's, it's so true though, like, I can relate a lot, actually. What a positive way to end the podcast. <laughs> um, yeah, so maybe like, maybe I'll give you one more question, just, just because, just because I, I'm interested. So if you have like one line of poetry that you would want to, want the world to hear, what would that be? Oh. 
There's a line from Coleridge's This Lime Tree Bower by Prison, which goes, uh, No plot so narrow be but nature there. No waste so vacant but may well employ each faculty of sense and keep the heart awake to love and beauty. I say that's a beautiful way to end the podcast. So, Professor Wilkins, what's the best way for our audience to reach you if they want to connect or have follow-up questions? At Minerva, I'm Jay Wilkins. Email, Slack. I'm on Twitter, but, you know, that's not going to last long. <laughs> well, thank you for being so... Thank you so much for being on the show, Professor Wilkins. It thank you. such a pleasure to talk to you. Yes, and have a nice day. All right. Thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and automatically get notified about new episodes on Spotify, Apple, and Google Podcasts. Follow us on Instagram at humansofminerva.podcast for all the latest updates and announcements. And finally, special thanks to our editor, Cassandra Cruz, for working her magic on this episode. Thanks for listening to Humans of Minerva.